Hello, this is the Consequential Podcast, and uh, joining me this evening is Lucy Boyd. Hi. And not Mr. Dave Convery, because apparently he's moving house or some such workshy bollocks. Mm. Sloppy, Dave, very sloppy. Anyway, Lucy. Comics. Yes. What have you been reading? Well, so I caught up on Heirloom this week. Mm. This is um, the ongoing webcomic by friend of the podcast, Dave Barker. So far about a sort of child sacrifice trapped in a tomb trying to get out. Um, It's still really good. And there's sort of a nice kind of meaty amount of it now to be getting started with. So I am... First time I took a look at it, it was just the first chapter, and now they're up to, I think, six. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. The colour and the light in particular is fantastic. It's really extremely rich. And sort of fantasy-wise, it's also the kind of story that I like. I mean, I'm into sort of nebulously old-fashioned adventures. Um, I finished reading The Carpet Makers recently and again that sort of there's a bunch of weird shit going on in a kind of dusty forgotten place is it's always been a place I like for my sci-fi and fantasy to go to so that's good Um, I guess the only kind of it's not exactly a complaint but I'm left wanting more stories still it's it's still kind of a bud yeah it's quite the the episodes are quite slow moving Mm. and also I guess I mean he's he's an art guy I mean he's been sort of working in art for his career as far as I know and I'm a kind of words person and I'm sort of I would like a few more words but that's okay you don't have to give them to me just because I ask for them the uh, the process there's quite interesting so he's collaborating on it with Hester okay interesting and she's I think he's scripting and she's sort of editing and reworking mm. if you check out Elum the comic uh, again we'll obviously put it in the show notes it's these beautiful long vertical panels with as you say this move, sort of kind of I want to mm. say lyrical movement of mm. light and shade oh yes uh, and one of the things Dave sort of told me about a few times when he's been trying to sort of explain art to my broken brain is sort of start with or at least always pay attention to sort of colour va- like value Mm. Sort of light versus dark and light versus dark balance. Mm. Yes, no, I watched... Um, so, again, not not an artist, not good mm. at that stuff, not always good at perceiving it, but watching a friend in sixth form do a sort of black and white painting and just start by picking out where all the light was was kind of fascinating. It never occurred to me that you do it like that, mm. but I guess it makes sense if your brain is wired that way. Yeah. And so the other thing I checked out this week was um, the preview of Something City by Ellis Weaver. It was, it was fascinating. So it's kind of, it's a story of 10 different interconnected sort of groups of people and lives all living in the same city. It kind of takes you through different parts of town, different experiences. Um, uses colour very heavily to kind of distinguish between where it's at. Um, I think the thing that kind of struck me the most about it was it's, kind of about what it means to be normal depending on your context Mm -hmm. and that is so different for so many of the characters that it explores so for instance there's a sort of nudist colony and someone who is struggling with going outside and is skyping their parents and their parents are the nudist colony and they're like oh do you have to do that and their parents like it's free and natural we think you should do it and both people's idea of normal is extremely different Mm. kind of irreconcilably different and yet everyone's trying to pursue normal for themselves. The little girl in that section, it's, it's the one that ends with her being kind of, don't you understand, you're the ones that are in danger, sort of, I can see the germs. Why do it? I have to yeah. bear the weight of worrying about all of you when you won't worry about yourselves? It's kind of that weight that's keeping me trapped in here, yes. No, it's very good at creating these little pockets of weirdly misfelt normalcy. Mm. So the, um, the first story about the lady who sort of precipitated the dog attack yes. trying to sort of fit back into suburbia mm. and the first thing she jars against isn't people realising who she is and being unpleasant it's not really wanting that twee lifestyle blogger life yes health club and stuff mm. yes smoothies mm. yes I thought that was that was an interesting kind of plot strand and because it also sort of took on the idea of sort of pervasive trolling of people with negative intent. You know, this is a woman who rescued a dog that was about to be put down, and then the dog went on to give someone else a life-changing injury, and so she's being sort of cast as the bad person in this scene. Um, and as you kind of go through the rest of the narrative, you catch up later with the woman who was mauled, and um, the woman who did the bad thing ostensibly gets just endless horrible abuse texted at her shouted at her all the time 
And then there's a note sort of pages and pages on saying that the woman who actually got injured, you know, tried a crowdfunding campaign, but it didn't really go anywhere. People had forgotten at that point. And just that sort of mm-hmm. that empathy gulf between wanting to inflict pain on someone you think has done wrong and not actually wanting to help the person who was wronged feels very diagnostic of where we're at as a society yeah. right now. And then the little coder at the end where it turns out to be the... Um, her friend her who's friend sending doing a lot of the abusing. Who, who sort of, which kind of made me sort of turn my glib point around a bit because presumably that person is giving her some degree of practical support but the sort You'd of hope so. maybe You're sort of helping her move and there's there's a bunch of stuff there yeah but the kind of the sort of the broad idea that people are much more interested in sort of castigating a witch than they mm. are in helping the wronged feels really true and there's quite a lot of that so the uh, the face enhancement app section oh, terrifying god that's bitter there's sort of you've got in the techno community there's there's an app that uh enhances your face makes you look younger and people have found it's become sort of taboo to show your face in public because you're exposed to show this better version yes everyone's wrapped up in scarves and sunglasses and when someone out in their garden saying I just can't do this anymore they're like you're disgusting put your disgusting face away (laughs) and it's funny but it's horrible this this is what I thought it did really well was sell I guess it's just black comedy isn't it it's it's sell the humour in something harrowing yes We've, we've kind of drifted again as a society from sort of gritty dystopia into black comedy dystopia Mm. because all you really can do is point out the horrible ironies and try and get a laugh out of it rather than you know you don't need to grind in more why it's bad how did you get on with the art um it was actually surprisingly good i didn't think i would get on that well with it when i sort of saw the first couple of pages but I mean, the biggest thing... So it's not super movement action heavy. It's no. panel by panel. Sort of the way speech is presented is very, very consistent and easy to read. And again, that's another thing that confuses me when it's not. So it sort of... It worked a lot better than I thought it would for me. Yeah, I mean, so there's a, there's a review of this up on the site. And one of the things that I call out very briefly in that is sort of moments in space. Mm. It's a very, very spatial book. It's got this sort of architectural plan feel. Yes, every section you're, you're meeting a new part of the city and seeing the kind of grid and... Mm. The people in the shops and yeah, and it has this thing that's actually, and I, I think I draw this illusion as well. Hannah Berry does a few times in Adam T mm. of showing time move against a sort of static or potent, ambiguously static, non-static background. Mm. So you'll have these. There are these three frames of different people in different places in the room in a dinner party, mm. and their dialogue is sequential, but their positioning is static, or is it? And yes, kind of. So are you are you with the eye looking around the room? Or are you simultaneously there? Sort of it. There's a really nice, in places, there's a really nice interplay between the exercising and not exercising the option comics has on doing spatial shit. Yes. No, I think it um, it treads a good balance there. Recommend? Yeah, definitely. I, I absolutely would. Uh, I, I, I want to go and fondle the physical edition, actually. So we, we got it in digital. Yes, I've been interested, very interested in the sort of print stock. And... But this is Avery Hill, so they do yes. quite, a high, yes. quite a high publishing standard. It's nice. I assume it's going to be top-bound, or is it going to be side? Side, side maybe? Like, I, it's, I would have seen, I don't know. It's landscape-y. So. Yes. Because that's going to change the feel a bit. Mm. I guess if the the left, I, I did it as a very long scroll yeah. through a PDF. Rather. Likewise, so the left right progression sometimes that's going to be you're going to get cut off points that you don't get in a PDF yeah. and such, and it'll be interesting to see I'm, how I'm those are used. Generally, very pro digital, but sometimes that experience can be particularly reading digit things that have been digitized from print first. Yes, could be quite strange. Well, I mean, with print you get the whole of the physicality of the thing to play with, including breaks mm. where you choose them to be, which when it's all kind of one long PDF you lose to some extent, but but then again you get you can some... read it on your phone, <laughs> and you get people like Emily Carroll or you know Dave Parker with Ellie, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. who are really good at using the scrolly digital kind of yes. non-physical. Something I'm going to come back to a lot, but the affordances of the medium, the concept of of making good use of the things that are distinct and tangible about a particular medium. Mm. Um, I'm going to come on. I'm going to come back to that because we're going to be talking about spin-offs. Yes. But before that, what have you been reading this week? Um, well, as, as, our, as our acute listeners will notice me having blathered about it, also Something City by mm-hmm. um, Ellis Wheeler. Recommend more detail on the, on the site. It's, it's not one of my more rambling reviews. You can actually read that one without you know, falling asleep. It's, on the toilet, maybe. Maybe. It's, mm. yeah, I'd say it's a toiletable review. Mm. And that's the quality standard here at Consequential. It absolutely is. I keep thinking with the other podcast, I keep nearly saying we will fix you or doing the voice. It's, it's a bad scene. Um, I haven't read Masses else. Uh, over the long weekend, I went on a yaoi binge. Oh, good. Not really. No? <laughs> no. Okay. No. <laughs> oh. 
what sad pointy boys did you see and how did you defile them with your mind? I saw the sad pointy boys of Ten Count by Ruhito Takari or Takarai. And this is it this was pure kind of clicky clicky pretty boys on the cover and it costs two quid. How bad can it be? Oh god. Um Oh the last time I had one of those, it was really good, though. It was that manga about the dog robot. So that sounds really awesome. No, that's, I'm going to slag it off, but in a weird sort of way, because I think the things that are wrong with it are worth discussing, and they're interesting. Mm. But as a sort of coda to that, and I'll try and remember to repeat this a couple of times, it's kind of good, you know? Like it's, mm. it's a solid example of the style. I see. If you're into that, you'll probably enjoy it. Yeah. So this just popped up in my uh, people who also bought Amazon thing mm. after I'd, um, oh, I don't know, some sort of bit of queer cinema we mm. decided to watch and Amazon had mashed together, mm, queer cinema, lots of comics, he'll, he'll want the yaoi then. Mm. And sometimes I do. And Ten Count is, it's a book about a guy recovering from sort of acutely germophobic, acutely kind of contamination-focused mm-hmm. OCD and being helped through it with um, some sort of cognitive behavioural therapy by a therapist that's got the hots for him in a scenario that gets like hella rapey, hella quick. The worst kind of therapy is dick therapy. Yeah, he doesn't really like having his dick touched as well, so the dick therapy is particularly like, yeah. Through through a mesh, a protective mesh? I I don't know. Um, Okay, so you've got um, these these two core characters, and as one of the things that annoys me about Yaoi, Mm -hmm. sometimes, not all the time, Mm -hmm. sometimes, and this does it quite badly, is you've got this core couple, and almost all of the other characters are barely kind of written. Barely characters, yeah. yes. And this is one of those. There are like two or three other characters. Pop-up cardboard humans in the background. One of them's kind of written, the other's not so much. Mm. Um, so you've got um, Shiratani Tadomi, who's this corporate secretary, works for the CEO. He's like the secretary, uh, CEO's PA, basically. Okay. Super straight-laced, obviously pointy and very pretty. Definitely. Wears gloves, suit, um, acute contamination-based OCD. Presumably, though, that's one of those jobs where wearing gloves is not necessarily out of place. If you're a sort of kind of high-end concierge PA to a Japanese CEO, I can see I that working. It, they do a good job of making that borderline, is it weird, is it anime, okay. is it manga styling, and then it breaks down that he is weird. So he occasionally gets odd glances from people. There are some really lovely visual touches. It's quite well drawn. It's quite well put together. Mm. Uh, and in a bike accident that knocks his CEO over putting him in hospital, um, he meets um, Raiku Kurose, who's a um, psychotherapist mm. and kind of weird, coercive dickhead. But we graduate. Good combination <laughs> does exist in the wild. Um, and he uh, agrees to um, help him out, mm. basically, with some free therapy. And what they're going to do is this, based on the idea of counting steps through 1 to 10, mm-hmm. um, Exposure response prevention therapy, mm. which is an actual thing. It's like one of the CBT techniques used to treat certain types of, of OCD. Mm-hmm. And you gradually introduce some of the triggering stimuli and try and mitigate them. Yeah. And try and prevent having a response. Mm-hmm. And you do it in a controlled and a safe manner and you gradually escalate and some people have great results with this. The first book, provided they then don't get, like, you know, arguably non-consensually done up the shit by the therapist. There are ethical considerations. There are ethical considerations. Therapists, don't do that. Mm. I'm going to keep making these cheap cracks because it's just, it's such a fucking tedious yaoi thing to do of the... It's a real shitter of a plot setup. I mean... I'm just a little tired of the out of left field, really unhealthy relationship dynamics. Like, it's going kind of fine and then suddenly, bam, creepy as fuck. But also, there was not really any need to play with the ethical relationship between a therapist and their client. It's, I guess it's yeah. interesting. And it doesn't say too much about it. It's almost presented as though it's fine. Ugh. Not totally. I mean, not not totally, but... Sure. But fine enough that that's what they do the whole time. Yeah, well, only... So the first volume's quite chaste and quite... The first volume is them negotiating what the hell their relationship is. Um, Taromi not really able to realise that anyone might like him, much less as a friend, much less as potentially a lover, mm. being quite closed off, opening up, mm. and then forming a friendship around this sort of pseudo-aversion therapy, mm. exposure therapy they're doing. And it's quite a sensitive 
portrayal. You feel genuinely really sorry for Tadomi. You, you think that Kurose is kind of a bit into him and is puppy doggy actually helping him, but it's not that bad. It's kind of yeah, it's not weird at this point. It's a bit oversteppy, but it's not that bad. And then you like the the yaoi rapey hockey stick curve just kind of starts kicking in at the end. Ooh, up and, and to the right. Yeah, up and to the right. Uh, and volume two gets pretty porny. Quite well drawn. It's, you know, problematic, but oh. Fine. Um, oh, but of course, the second they start having a sexual relationship, their therapeutic relationship ends, right? I mean, oh, of course. It's completely like behaviorally kosher. There is zero ethical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's... It, the first volume is a pretty sensitive portrayal of super awkwardness and this guy's condition, mm. and it's it's fun. And then it just kind of there's this thing this crops up in Yaoi quite a lot. We talked about it in some of the queer stuff podcasts, yeah, we did some manga podcast. And Yaoi comes in for a lot of flack as being potentially like tarred with the same brush style, kind of homophobic, of mm. portraying all queer relationships as abusive or coercive as having these weird like, power dynamics yeah mm. they, they often you'll have the sort of semi-uke thing of enforcing a strict top-bottom dynamic mm. with behavioural stuff going with it so th- this is this is the pantomime villain version of Yaoi the, like, if you were to fight Yaoi as a straw man that's what it would look like it mm. would look like that and this has some of those tropes and I was just sort of chewing this over and this is just something I'm going to throw out there I need to do some more research but it occurred to me that if you um if you had to come up with what a bunch of queer relationships would look like without many reference points, mm. like, say, the, as, as you might have had to do as a Japanese woman writing yaoi in the 70s, mm. like, just not queer stuff, usually culturally taboo, not many modern touch points. This is a lot more recent than that. Yeah. I think it's sort of my, one of my guesses about the history of the medium kind of getting like this lack of reference points but also I kind of wonder if reflexively it isn't just a sort of a really unpleasant judgment again about masculinity rather than this is weird sort of homophobia I just find myself wondering maybe some of the reasons Yowie's power dynamics are fucked Yowie's relationships are horribly coercive is maybe it's written by women who've been treated like that by dudes and assume that's how dudes treat other dudes yeah, like yeah. this is what masculinity looks like when no one when no one female's watching yeah no I, I actually I'm very compelled by that as an I argument. Mean, I just, it just sort of hit me as I was walking into work the other day, and I'm sure it's not an original idea, but I just thought maybe actually the, the kind of the secret sucker punch of Yaoi is that it's basically a giant throbbing middle finger to fucked masculinity. Mm. Um, yeah, this is what you're like, you horrible, horrible assholes, and we're going to flick ourselves off over the pretty versions. As long know. as everyone gets off on it. I maybe. Mean. I don't know. That's my... But 10 count, it's... Alright. Providing you don't mind the, all those boundaries that we just mentioned. Yeah. That get well, crossed. the first volume's generally, genuinely good, and mm. then it's more interested in exploring the, well, BDS, sort of slightly BDSM y, but mm. consensually hugely problematic stuff. You'll note I haven't talked about the art, I'm not going to, it's fine. <laughs> Does what it needs to do. Yeah. And then the other thing I read was the final, up just after they keep fucking putting it back, the final volume of just the thing I couldn't put on my best of year last year that is bloody well going on it this year, which is AD After Death, mm-hmm. uh, written by Scott Snyder and um, drawn by Jeff Lemire, and lettered, I don't normally remember to mention lettering, but this is kind of super important in this case, by Steve Wands. And we talked, I, well, I witted on about AD After Death to anyone that would listen for months and months and months. It came out at the arts end of last year. Three part trade to come out soonish, but I've been buying the singles because I wasn't sure they'd do it justice in the trade. You've been buying the singles? Yeah. Ooh. They're like these magazines. They've got this clothy. Is that is what thick... comics are like? Oh shit. What have I been reading? There's toilet rolls that have cartoons on them. <laughs> oh yes, the Lootoons. For fuck's sake. That's about the comic. It's wonderful. Um, slightly larger than the normal floppy single format. Thick covers, thin pulpy paper, typewriter styling, mm-hmm. and they alternate between being pages of sequential art and modernist formatted like mise en page wibbly uh, prose stories. Well, it's all one story, but there are these nested bits of memory, so you get this sort of picture of short stories giving it this echo of a sort of pulp sci fi or lyric true crime mag with a mm-hmm. typewriter mm-hmm. typeface. And all of it with Jeff Lemire's ink-washy, watercolory thing through he it. He likes doing that. Beautifully, beautifully paired to Snyder and Lemire's respective styles. Mm-hmm. Obviously, one's on lettering. Who I'm going to keep forgetting, and he, his work just completely makes it. But the page composition 
it's the closest thing I've seen to like, mise en page modernism in comics for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So the the flow of the lettering is genuinely part of the the visual and kind of well, the, it's part of the narrative experience as well. But one of the things Snyder likes to do, I called attention to this, I think, the first time I talked about it, about the back matter in Witches, is tell mm-hmm. these little memory stories that loop around to being about something else. Yeah. Um, and Future One Lens, actually, that's just a massive spoiler for the book, but it's, it's set in this world after a cure for death has been developed. Mm-hmm. And something else is going on, and we don't really know what, but we follow the story of this guy, Jonah Cook who seems to be just an ordinary working stiff, and then we find out that he was involved in the discovery of the cure for death, and we find out that he used to be a professional thief. We find out quite a lot of things about him. He finds out things about the world. Something's going on. He's trying to solve a problem. Yeah. Unusually for us on the show, I'm not going to spoiler it. I think it's worth letting it unfold. It Mm -hmm. does some... Also, it's kind of one of the things where it won't be the same the second time you read it, because you'll sort of see it differently. You'll pick up different cues and clues. and Yeah. Uh, and it does trust the reader. It, tr- it, it doesn't over-explain. It maybe gets a little bit of a predictability uptick towards the very end. Mm-hmm. Very prose-heavy. It's mostly a kind of a, yeah. It's mostly a prose work. There are very few continuous pages of comic. This sounds good, actually. And it's it's visually beautiful. Um, for she us, says the, being on the wrong podcast, it turns out after say, five years. For us, the comics podcast that don't really like comics. Yes. <laughs> no, we, we kind of do. It's just... Mm. In a weird way. In a weird way. So yeah, it opens with this this story about a family vacation that goes sort of wrong in a thwarted, non-tragic way, mm. and ends with the sort of last ditch to do something fun, where the family end up chasing in a car chasing a balloon that they see, which turns out to be one of those school projects to see how far it gets. Mm-hmm. And there's this harrowing moment of the dad reaching for the balloon, finding it, phoning the number, and finding out that the competition closed two weeks ago, <sighs> and their balloon kind of got further than anyone else's, and he's just yelling, "But it got further! But we won! God damn it!" And, and then something harrowing happens in the background, and it's just these beautiful, beautiful articulations of often acutely sad or deeply sensory memory. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time Jonah stole some artwork, or the evocations of the way he pulls off theft in like theft to order in the modern world. Mm-hmm. And it moves forwards into some pretty hard sci-fi and some pretty weird shit. Again, articulated with this weird, spiky, washy watercolor style that that Lemire has, all proofed through with this gorgeous lettering and sorry I'm, I'm so excited about this book <laughs> it's a bunch of recursive memory stories in a modernist style with a clever but not too smug sting in its tail done in a sci-fi way by Jeff Lemire this was laser targeted for you wasn't this is it just they fun. got inside your brain and that's how they decided what to do next it's brilliant you could argue that volume 3 is a bit of a letdown it's sort of there is a slight yeah predictability round but it remains beautiful uh, it remains extraordinarily well done People familiar with Lemire's work will kind of see that he's doing that thing he does. Mm-hmm. Um, Snyder again. Stories about memory, stories about childhood experience, what it means, how you see the world as an adult. Mm-hmm. What death is and isn't. What, what, do you, what does it feel like to not die? Would you ever want to die? It asks a lot of those questions. Mm-hmm. Not in a super on-the-nose way. It, kind of, it all just gets trickled out through um, Jonah's experience. One of the things is that you're in, in this post-death world your memory is only good for about a, a bit more than a lifetime's worth and you start forgetting. So you're in this kind of shifting frame of about a hundred or so years worth of useful memory. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good touch of possible realism. Yeah. You know? And so Jonah keeps these diaries, but he can't remember who he, who he was and whether he's always been the same person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people forget. Um, by the time we meet him, he's probably something like 600 years old. Mm. Uh, Gosh, it might even be massive. No, it's massively longer than that. I think it's just 25 cycles, so... Wow. Yeah. An age. Like um, the vampires from the Vampire Chronicles. Oh. Bare old. Oh. Sorry that I tarnished this nice podcast with the Vampire Chronicles. That's fine. Yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's got a lot to say. Sometimes in not a very original way, but the, the bits in the kind of the plotting or the story construction that aren't very original are sort of papered over beautifully by the visual design and the style of the thing and... I just I wasn't expecting this. I mm-hmm. wasn't expecting a thing like this um, to just casually appear. And not many people have fated it. I've not seen it on a lot of best of lists. I've not heard a lot of fanfare. I think the first issue sold really badly, or maybe maybe it was the second one. But it wasn't sort of stocked that widely. Mm. Watch out for the trade. Get get the physical ones if you still can. Um, it's storming. Good. That is a strong recommendation. Mm. 
And I think that's that's all I read that uh, that weren't sort of dipping back into spin-offs. 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 Do you want some cheese before we spin-off? Let's. Mm. Yeah, spin-offs. DC did before Watchmen. Mm-hmm. They announced they were going to do some sequel stuff. They're going to do this sort of Dr. Manhattan meets Superman thing. And it just sounds painful. You have to wear pants when you meet Superman, don't you? Probably. I imagine that's why he's cross. Mm. Um, Big and blue and cross. That's probably the, that's probably the tagline. Mm. And this, this reminded me of just how fucking creatively bankrupt quite a lot of comic stuff is. Mm. Uh, and how many things... Do you remember, oh gosh, that, that ages the thing that was the term that was doing the rounds, oh, comics are like movies with an infinite budget? Yes, which to is which, a fucking fatuous thing to say. To which most of the artists will basically respond... Don't you fucking dare. I have to draw that shit. <laughs> yes, a budget limited by what you can persuade an artist to, you know... Limited by my physical wrists. Yeah. So, spin-off comics have been around forever, but we've sort of been thinking about them a bit in light of just sort of some things more recently and, you know, remembering a few of them. The overall question, can they be good? And I would say, broadly speaking, yes. Yes. For people that want to stop listening now, but, you know... There's our thesis. You've had it. Yes. Um, but there's some there's some interesting things about what happens when you sort of cross the streams, I guess. So we're not going to talk about um, Before Watchmen or comic to comic spin-offs. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we'll cover those at some other point. I don't think we're really going to talk about adaptations much. No, I don't believe so. This is this is more or less pure. You have a franchise in one mm. medium. You've ported it to comics. How did that go? Yeah, so it's kind of franchise extension mostly. Yeah. And one of the things I find interesting about this is the comics are or mainstream. Anglo-American comics are so rooted in this. Mm. The properties of the big two, the big superhero things, it's all just franchise extension. Oh, yeah. You take the character, you retcon it, you squish it, you change the colour of their underpants, you give it to another writer to write, mm-hmm. you kill them, you bring them back to life, you do a universal crossover. It's all about this sort of indefinite prolongation of the franchise. Mm. And then at the moment, there are the, the MCU movies, the, the Marvel, mm-hmm. Marvel movies, which have crossed the other, like have gone out from comic to to screen phenomenally successfully. Much more so than the comics that inspired them. Yes, and um, so that you know, for a lot of comics, franchise extension works really, really well. Mm. And again, TLDR, what's our thesis? I think for me, a lot of it is the reason that stuff often works really, really well is you put good creative teams on it, and if you're just trying to screw a fast buck out of it, you can tell the difference between one where they give a shit about the quality of the franchise extension and the ones where they don't where it's just a beautiful teat filled with dollars one of the most interesting tensions in that for me um, so you, you you read some of the Simpsons comics yes I did yes and I expected those to be squeezing the teat full of dollars they're not um, and I read a bunch of Doctor Who comics or mm. kind of not actually a whole bunch I used to read them avidly as a kid and then I kind of leafed through the stuff I still had and tried mm. really hard to remember the rest and again some of the you'd sort of a much smaller teat full of jangly, gnarled pound coins mm. from the Doctor Who wilderness years, but sometimes dollar teat, sometimes quality merch. It's yes. there's a really weird blend there. Tell me about the Simpsons comics. So I'd actually read the majority of these before when they came out because I had a um, kind grandmother who used to pick them up for me at the newsagents whenever she saw them. So it was interesting to see what I did and didn't remember, and I was very glad that they actually one of the collections that I had. Um, included something I did remember quite vividly, which was a version of the Jabberwocky, but done in the Simpsons universe, <laughs> set at like a sort of picnic day out kind of thing. That's brilliant. All tipsy with the friends of Mo. <laughs> 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 yes, and that, that was one of those things that sort of, with less context as a child, just kind of slowly kind of sits inside you for quite a long time. So going back to it was very nice. So I guess my, my kind of main takeaways were... It was still genuinely funny, and it felt... I mean, these were kind of written kind of 96 to 99, mm. the kind of peak Clinton impeachment years. Um, Who's the creative team? Or is it all over? It's everyone, okay. yes, which is why I sort of didn't yeah. manage to list them in the show notes. Um, it actually... There was a lot that still felt astute and kind of politically relevant now. So one of them was um, where the sort of the presidential campaign rolls into town, and it's... 
you know, the Simpson characters accidentally interact with the politicians and find out even the ones they like from the media are all absolutely terrible. And the media basically wants to come to a real small town in America but totally exclude any of its citizens from getting involved in the process. <laughs> and all of that felt... I mean, we've sort of... We've turned it up a notch on the hyper-reality since then. We've, um, you know, we have the internet these days and such. But it still felt like it had a message that was kind of relevant for 20-odd years later. The thing that I really, really enjoyed about it actually was you get to spend a lot more time with the smaller background characters because you don't have to pay the voice guy to turn up. So you get a lot more kind of wide cast stuff. You get people who you necess- wouldn't necessarily crop up every episode, mm-hmm. but you enjoy spending time with them. They're there in the comics. It's cheaper to write than it is to pay a dude to say some words, right? Infinite budget. Exactly. Um they still had some problems. I think the biggest thing, my biggest complaint is, and this is also sort of true of the show of that era as well, I don't know what it's like since because I haven't really watched it for a few years, the jokes punch down a little bit too often. Mm. There are a few things that they see as fair game that I don't really see as fair game anymore and that jars a bit and yeah. I don't know if that is just a product of its time or not. But, and also it... You know, I mentioned who's the creative team. Well, it's kind of everyone. It it occasionally feels... You can feel it having been written in a room mm. as opposed to... I mean, we're much more used to covering either single writer-creator stuff or small team writer-creator stuff. Um, and this is very much not that. Are they anthology books? Yes, these are um, not sort of cover to cover. These are collections of the best of that particular era of the run. So I was reading, I had sort of three different compendiums from 96 to 99-ish mm. with... Because each Simpsons comic as a kind of single had multiple stories and yep. fun little bits of back matter and stuff. And they oh. included some of that as well. They were sort of a bit like the Beano book. It was just Yes, exactly. Um, they really, really went to town on, like, crusty-related marketing as a thing. So <laughs> as crusty would. As crusty would. You know, there's the crusty sort of seed catalogue thing where if you sell enough seeds for crusty you might get any one of these absolutely terrible prizes with a little um, talking head from Millhouse saying I sold like 3,400 packs of these things and still haven't received my gift <laughs> <laughs> it's all yes if you like spending time with those characters if you like spending time in that universe it's a very kind of pleasant low stakes quite fun way of doing that it wasn't a chore at all to read yeah, I, so I read, and I'll talk about it in a bit, but mm. I have some similar thoughts about the Flintstones, which has had various um, adaptations, but the one I looked at was the um, 2016. The, the new one? Yeah, yeah. it looks lovely. No, I, I want to read it. It sounds... They've gone sort of gritty and political with it. Yeah, well, but... But? It's sort of like first-year undergrad anti-capitalist, except it's really funny and it's not awful. <laughs> Well, I mean, first year undergrad anti-capitalist seems to be where like 30% of the world has just about got to now, so maybe that's... Maybe it'll be cool soon. Maybe it's the Flintstones we need. I think it is the Flintstones we want to see in the world. The Flintstones we deserve? Yeah. Fair. We, um, but I, I was thinking as you, as you were talking about the Simpsons thing about... So one of, one of the things that's interesting about spinning off into a different medium is mm. that you have different affordances of that medium. There are different things. So, you know, most obviously with comics, no sound. Yes. A semi-kinetic medium, a medium that can get great dividends out of being static, can get great dividends out of kinetic behaviour. Well, interestingly, so Dace's big complaint, reading this over my shoulder, there's a particular scene where um, Grandpa has become El Grandpo, the mm. um, graffiti senior citizen, because he wants to bring back... Um, fuck, what's it called? Some dreadfully named sort of... Um, snake oil type medicine that he used to enjoy <laughs> in the 30s and um, he and Bart end up vandalising the Duff blimp at a big game and it yeah. all kind of goes down and you've got a scene where the blimp is going down and then you've got another scene straight after where the blimp's deflated on top of a fountain outside mm. the retirement home and he and Bart are sat on it waiting to be apprehended by the authorities and he dates a man with much more sort of visual progress acuity than I have and um he was just like, it makes no sense. How did they get from there to there? But I guess I have never needed it to make sense how mm. they got from there to there. So I think if you're super into realism of action, it might be a bit disappointing. But if you don't mind 
that kind of flit from... Mm. I mean, The Simpsons is improbable anyway. That's yeah. one of its kind of selling points. And so you've got... Yeah, so this, this is exactly it is. As a comic of The Simpsons is going to be that much more like The Simpsons just off base. Yes. Because it's, it's trying to do different... Um, well, sorry, similar things. It's a different... But it's also... There's the episodic things. Like yes. I, I got to thinking about the Doctor Who comics, which told quite mm. small episodic stories. They... Um, they first appeared in Doctor Who Weekly in the, I think, like late 70s, mm. and ran for ages, although there have been Doctor Who comics back from to the 60s. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was, maybe because Doctor Who Weekly started quite early, I think. I, I might have got my dates wrong. But the ones I remember were back issues I snaffled up of Doctor Who Monthly from the late 80s, and then mm-hmm. the early to mid-90s ones that I was reading. So they'd be these... The monthly- real doldrum years. Yeah. Well, it was the sort of... Because it cancelled in 89. Yes. So, I think... They did some sort of whiffly one-offs throughout the 90s, yeah. but... And then the... So the magazine and the spin-off novelizations were kind of keeping the franchise alive. Mm. And so for a while they were canonical who, and that all sort of went out the window. That doesn't really matter. I'm not going to count and wank too much except for this one thing that's brilliant. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But an episodic show, and one of its strengths was writing very quickly spin up and put down memorable micro-characters. Yes. And doing episodic pulpy sci-fi fits slightly better into doing a monthly pulpy sci-fi comic. Yes. Especially when you staff it up with the people from, or in the general ecosystem of 2000 AD, Yes. a weekly episodic sci-fi comic with the artists <laughs> who've been doing, in black and white, a black and white weekly episodic sci-fi, sci-fi comic. comic. Yes. So there's the kind of, in that, there you lose some affordance of the medium. Mm. You gain some others. The infinite budget, and God knows Doctor Who could have benefited from an infinite budget. You, you lose and you have some things sheared off in the transition, but if you kind of keep some of the vibe with the creative team, or if you keep some of the vibe with the way you curate putting it together... Yes, and I think this is, again, what separates it from the pure money teat. And the same is true for the Simpsons comics in that... I mean, the show, and as far as I can tell, the kind of creators and writers, is it's reasonably steeped in nerd culture. It mm. has its own comics franchises within the show. There's Radioactive Man, there's yeah. the comic book guy, there's crowds and crowds of nerds in that show. And so actually getting them on the page in their own comic, you're sort of, you're doing it gently and with friends. Yes, yes, I think so. Doctor Who Weekly, I think it was Doctor Who Weekly, certainly Doctor Who Magazine for a bit, were published by Marvel UK. Mm. And so there were bits of cross-use across the franchise. So technically, if you squint via the comics, Doctor Who is in the Marvel Universe. When will we get the MCU (laughs) movie that we definitely don't need or deserve? It's all via this character called Death's Head, who's a robot bounty hunter that they wanted to use in Transformers, but didn't Mm. want to see the rights to Hasbro, so they had to put him in a different Marvel franchise first. And then he gets reused because the right... Anyway, it's it's ridiculous. But yes, technically the the continuity is smoosh. So there's lots of this joyous fan wank, lots of 2000 AD references, Blake mm-hmm. 7 references, mm-hmm. things like that. There's this one series I remember particularly, and I looked up a little bit, called Emperor of the Daleks, which is doing the fan wankiest thing, which is stitching together the plot gap in what's happening with the Daleks off screen between two Dalek stories. Oh, people love that shit. It's, it's basically in, in one of the sort of iconic but slightly wanky Dalek stories towards the end of Doctor Who remembers the Dalek. Davros turns up as the Dalek Emperor, how the fuck did he get there mm-hmm. is the question. And it sort of tells that story. But it pulls in fan-wank character Absalom Dark, who's a straight out of 2000 AD Dalek hunting mercenary. Mm-hmm. It pulls in all sorts of other bits and pieces in this trips along at a thousand miles an hour story in an itchy fidgety 2080 style and manages to actually work. And it's like, yeah, all right, fair play to you. <laughs> this kind of, does it work as episodic? Does it work, a, does it work as a comic? Well, it's affordance of the medium again, so the way comic storytelling can behave, particularly episodic comic rather than mm. graphic novel, does it fit into the way the storytelling works? Does it fit into the way the visuals work, the flow? Does it take advantage of the spatial bits? And actually, with The Simpsons, the the comic format and the show format allow a lot of the same things mm. to happen. So, I mean, both of them, especially over kind of the course of its run as a show, it has become a series where a lot can happen and then it can kind of all get reset for continuity purposes yeah. if you need it to, even at the end of each episode. What could be more comics? Yes, and the comics do exactly the same thing. They let you explore a thing and have it ultimately not have any impact if it doesn't need to. Coming right out the opposite end is the fucking Buffy comics. Tell me about the fucking Buffy comics. Oh god, they're hot garbage. Oh. So. Because um, I thought about reading them and then you kept complaining about how bad they were, yeah, so I decided not to. I, just, I wanted to remember them as good, I really did. Um, did you read them originally? 
Yeah. Did you consider them good originally? No. Okay. So when no, you said you wanted to remember them as good, that was a memory that wasn't even there to I, be accessed. So this was 2000, not very much, I think. Right. And I read the first couple of issues. We were all making a lot of mistakes yeah, at that time. I thought, eh, no, no. Dawn's a giant now. Um, what? Infinite budget. In what sense did Dawn need to be a giant? Sometimes she's a sexy horse. What? <laughs> the cover of one of them, it's like issue 19 or something. Dawn... Uh, this is so, like, Joss Whedon fucked sexual morality, thinks he's being clever but isn't. She's dating a magical dude, mm. and cheats on him and gets cursed. And it's all kind of nudge-nudge, wink-wink, this is a deconstruction of how awful men are. But she still gets cursed and goes through the morality show. It has to be a sex horse. Yeah. It's I mean, I like of, a sexy horse as much as the next person, but it's not a great metaphor. It's proper wedding cake and eat it gender metaphor stuff. That oh. he when he'd already gone off the rails with it. That only a dude can pull off. But yeah, there's one of the covers where she's been transformed into a centaur, and it's all like coy boobs out, naked horse posing. Mm. Whereas no. that, I mean, since then you've read some much better sexy centaur comics. Yeah, quite sensitive. Yeah. Do you read Hobbler? No, but I'm aware of it thanks to you. <laughs> I will one day. So yeah, the comics purport to be Buffy season eight. It's 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 a blend of things. So it's it's written the first series, the first arc is written by Joss Whedon, and then Brian K. Vaughan comes on board. Mm. And then it's mostly um, an artist called George Genty. And I'm not going to come around and say he's a terrible artist, but it's certainly not memorable or interesting. And this is the problem with the money teat end. Also. You're trying to do things that have had real people in them, but not in a superhero way. It's not like there's a recognisable costume or mm-hmm. what Sometimes you just can't tell the people apart. And by oh, season eight, problem. Buffy has a huge ensemble cast because there are now 2,000 Slayers. Of course. Uh, and uh, it's just, it's full of fan service, it's full of nonsense. Sanders a cut price, Nick Fury, the storytelling's garbage. There's, there's one a little better later on, the, in, the one that introduces Brian K. Vaughan, No Future For You, is a mini-story with Faith, which is actually alright. Mm. But the bits with Buffy and the Slayers, who were doing black ops out of a castle in Scotland, and maybe fighting the government, and maybe there's some stuff going on. And then later there's some stuff in a dreamscape, and it all looks, it's just, oh... The best you've had to say about it is that a small part of it was actually all right. Yeah. It's... It, it's That's some faint praise. <laughs> Joss Whedon is a man who has historically found it very hard to kill his darlings. Mm. And someone told him about comics and the infinite budget and he thought he didn't have to kill another one ever again. He could instead transplant it to a castle in Scotland where you can do some black ops against the government, maybe. With budget Nick Fury. Be a sexy horse. Be a sexy horse. For shame reasons. That's a sexy shame horse. Oh. I don't want to feel ashamed of my love of a sexy horse. But I do. (laughs) And, you know, remarkably, I found myself thinking, yeah, well, the Buffy comics, it's a really interesting property. It's something I love. Joss Whedon has in the past been a fantastic writer. Mm. Um, Brian K. Vaughan has been an excellent writer. Maybe I'm going to love this. Maybe it's going to be brilliant. Maybe it'll be much better than the fucking Flintstones comic, which blew my mind. In a good way. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the best thing since Slice Something or other, but it's, you know, way better than you would expect a Flintstones comic to be, and it's pretty damn good objectively. Someone actually pointed out the other day that Betty White is older than Slice Bread, so the best thing since Betty White is an even better way of saying that. <laughs> which I'm happy to go for. I think the Flintstones... I'm, I'm not going to talk about it. I think the Flintstones thing has a lot of what you're talking about in The Simpsons. Yes. It works episodic, it's punchy. There's, they're single issues in the modern sort of style, but there are little mini-stories within them. Mm. Kind of. I think also cartoon to Comic-Con page is an easier transition than real-person drama mm. to Comic-Con page, unless you're doing something weirder with it than it sounds like they were trying to do with the Buffy comics, like visually. yeah. yeah. Well, the Buffy thing might have worked if they'd put a proper out-there artist on it. That's mm. the thing. If they got Jeff Lemire or um, even, I don't know, Declan Shelby, even, who's not that weird, but he's super stylish. If, if, if Declan Shelby had drawn the Buffy comics, it's like, don't lower yourself that to that, Declan. You've got better things to do. We need you for injection. He might have been a child at the time yeah. as well. I'm not sure. But if he'd drawn it like injection. Oh, and the colouring's kind of boring. But the, the, the Flintstones thing, one of the things they've done is they, they made it look tongue-in-cheek realistic. Mm-hmm. So Fred looks more like they look more like people, people. Yeah, like and less like comics. sort of blunt lumps of flesh. But it's it's full of these. It's tremendously on the nose, but I love it for it. So there are all these sort of look to camera 
we're trying to figure out what it means. It's introduced in an archaeological museum where they talk mm-hmm. about having just discovered that there was this civilization, proto-civilization, what must it have been like? Mm-hmm. And they keep talking about, you know, we're going to build a civilization. And it turns out that basically what's happened is that the owner of the quarry has had this idea for civilization mm. and so tricked or coerced everyone into going into fighting a brutal war to burn down the forests and murder all the forest people and build a city on the ruins. So Fred and all of his like buddies down the, down the lodge are actually, that's the Veterans Association, they've all got ravening PTSD. Of course. Uh, there's there's this, this sort of a section with uh, on a television news report. The new trend that's tweeting Bedrock, they're calling it crap. It's when people buy things they don't need. It's that kind of like, really harsh deconstruction of the like, if we went from naught to right now via one guy just being like, let's fucking do this, don't yeah. care what happens. We're going to do this thing and it's called civilization and it's got these attributes and it's just used to really sloppily but joyously look to camera sloppily deconstruct modern society. Yes, um, this is the Flintstones we deserve. It is. And the things about being sort of talked into believing in the war against the tree people mm-hmm. is very much about contemporary warmongering rhetoric mm-hmm. and wars for oil. Mm-hmm. Um there's a thing about wanting to expand the quarry and someone yells no blood for toil and it's it's that kind of um, and it turns out that Bam Bam is an adopted tree put, like tree tribe baby that mm-hmm. they couldn't bring themselves to kill when they burned down the forest and there are all of these weird little emotional punches um, Betty is trying to become an artist but no one will take her seriously mm-hmm. because everyone's too much of an art snob um, <laughs> I, there's a really the issue six I think has this visceral deconstruction of like the uh, sort of societal construction of, of women as property mm. and Betty having run away from her grandmother's place because they just discovered agriculture and on top of agriculture we're discovering trade and realizing that they could trade daughters for corn and so Betty like just pegs it. Oh fuck! Uh-huh. To be fair, I mean, if you'd stayed, you'd have had all of the calcium leached out of your body and teeth by probably like ten plus pregnancies. So yeah. Agriculture was really bad for women. They do those jokes. Well, not jokes, but they make those points through a series of really bleak... Flintstones metaphors. Flintstones jokes. Amazing. There's a thing about, sort of, well, you know, the nice... I, I liked it when we were nomads, but the nice thing about being able to settle is, you know, you can be close to the ones you love, and there's a tombstone of father, to the <laughs> beloved, such and such, and the next panel is just a series of tiny child gravestones with no... Some of, these, some of it is really derpy, and some of it is really bleak. Really fucking dark. That sounds awesome. Occasionally it cuts to the household appliances that are animals just mm. talking to each other about how they don't understand what's wrong with these people. Which kind of was always the attitude of the appliances in the yeah. show as well, but it sounds like it's got the... Um, it's got the soul the irony of the show more pointed. completely, um, and then some. It, and it, it's, it's by Mark Russell, art by Steve Pugh, neither of whom I'm particularly familiar with mm-hmm. um, myself. Again, we'll put links in the show notes. Looks fantastic, very funny. Really successful transition mm. from... Screen to page. No, I want to check it out. Did you? What else did you take a look at? I read the Pokemon manga. The Pokemon manga. The Pokemon manga. The Pokemon Adventures manga specifically. Now, this is Pokemon as a franchise is an interesting example because you can argue that all of it is the dollar teat to some extent. Everything yeah. past the first generation is the dollar teat with did also it? a competition and a poffin and a dress-up case and a load of other shit. Uh... Yes, no, so I'm, I'm actually, I've been replaying a bunch of the later games that I've played less of, and I think from Gen 3 onwards, there's probably at least 20 to 30% of the game's ostensible content is stuff I just don't care about at all. <laughs> you know, I get the magic doggies and I fight the other magic doggies, mm. that's the bit I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to even do mild roleplay, given the setup and the story in the world. There isn't... Is, there might be a story, also it's probably the aftermath of a hideous war. Well, well, no, I know, and that's always been one of my favourite Pokemon theories, but um, I'm really glad that Adventure Time sort of did that properly, but anyway. it's um, it, Remind me, um, and for the listeners at home, no, you all know what Pokemon is, but the thing I always get mixed up about is... Um, which which came first, the Pokemon or the egg? Like, was it So, the games came game first. The, no, the... Game Boy games, yep. which was red and green in Japan, and then red, blue, and then later yellow mm. in the West. The So it's very interesting, actually. The manga begins, I think, March 97? Possibly 96 or 97. The anime begins the month after. They're both about a game franchise, that they both have a slightly different story to, and they both have different characters and story to each other, but using the same character models. 
Ah. So in the anime, you have Ash Ketchum, got to catch up them all or something. Yeah. I don't know what the pun is there. Couldn't figure it out. Um, who goes around with Brock and Misty and, you know, Team Rocket are Jesse and James and they have a Meowth and there's all this stuff. And your rival is Gary Oak. The manga, which debuted at basically the same time, the main character is red, his rival is blue, Brock and Misty are more like their characters in-game and don't travel around with you. Team Rocket are not Jesse and James, those people don't exist in this world. So it's like you just took a franchise and you split it off in two very different but similar directions at the same time. Basically, they they jumped straight to 90s X-Men. Just yeah. From, from, from zero to X-Men. So I made a list of what I liked about it, what I didn't like about it, and something that was just a series of question marks as a category. <laughs> Can I run you through those? Please do. Okay, what I liked about it. Bulbasaur cute. Correct. Which is definitely true. The um, the art, especially for the kind of cuter Pokemon, is yeah. extraordinarily cute. A very squishy you early Pikachu. You looking at dog's face. I did. The, so the story was surprisingly engaging, which I wasn't expecting at all. I was expecting to read one volume of this thing and think, well, that was roughly the boring Pokemon story I expected. And actually, I, I read three. I read the first arc. So the first three volumes are the story of Red and Blue leaving Pallet Town, defeating the gym leaders, taking it to the Pokemon League, um, which is also the plot of the first game and the plot of the first anime. Another thing that is very interesting... Going from Blah to Blah, defeating the gym leaders and taking it to Blah is the plot of all of the Getting games. some Pokemons on the way, yes. But um, something that I found very interesting as a difference between the manga and the anime is the fact that in the anime, Ash can basically never win at the end because else what's the point of the rest of the anime? Mm. So every series, there's a big setup and a big challenge and he has to kind of ultimately fail so there's more room for growth. Mm. In the manga, he just straight out wins the first one, which I was like, damn, you guys... You had a lot of different creative teams <laughs> working on this one kind of flimsy franchise, right? Um, the sound effects are very good, but they occasionally drift into not really suitable for the English language market. There are clothes fapping on a line. Yeah, but there's a lot. Of, you know, the Bulbasaur makes a good like blub noise when it turns up, which is delightful. You made the dog's face. Um, the it occasionally uses actual game screenshots and sprites. Yeah. So when they whip out a Pokedex, it's the same pixely Pokedex entry you'd get in your game. That's really cute. They sometimes it's like, oh, let's look and see where we are on the map. And it's the little sprite from the game standing in the town on the map. All the buildings are drawn like a real building version of the buildings from the first game, which again is quite cute. The gyms look kind of recognisably the same shape and stuff. I'm trying to calculate which order of simulacrum that is. But I'm also wondering, like... To what extent were those just sort of weird abstractions of actual Japanese styles of building that now somebody's going back and drawing a better version of because it's the manga and not the game, but anyway. Um, the fighting is surprisingly non-euphemistic. So in the game, it's very much, I bash your Pokemon, you bash my Pokemon. The health bar goes up or down, depending on what you do. Whereas, I mean, to make it actually engaging, and they've had to do this in the anime as well, they have to show kind of actual tactics, actual fighting. You know, they look proper roughed up at the end of it. You don't really get a health bar. You've got to show the Pokemon is down because its eyes are crosses and it's sort of steaming and looking tired. Um, I was picturing sort of proper fight blood, just Pokemon spitting blood and teeth. <laughs> Not quite that bad. There's Squirtle just like his face all cut open. It's also, I think, the only part of the series that actually shows Pokemon when they're in their Pokeballs. They're not opaque, they're just little tiny versions of the Pokemon. They never explain how you can get an Onyx that is meant to be like six stories high into a tiny little ball, but fine. Maybe you just have to believe in yourself. Maybe you do. Um, there was a part of me that actually wished I'd read them at the same time as I was playing those first games because they are surprisingly educational about playing Pokemon in the ways that the games are not really. So, I mean, the games have kind of varying degrees of help text and NPC kind of text direction, but the books go into a lot more detail about sort of, you know, type advantage and what you can and can't do in a battle. It's all meant to... The actions are meant to realistically tie back to the game. It is much more a game tie-in. Cross-marketing, do you think? Well, I think also that's why they're red and blue rather than Ash and Gary, because mm. it's more like the game. It's more every man you can project yourself more easily onto it. Whereas an anime, because they're talking rather than you doing the brain imagining reading a book, you kind of need a more compelling character to latch onto. I don't think I could project myself onto someone called Gary. No. no it would be a, a stretch. 
Apologies, Gary's of the world. It's also, um, so it's kind of, on, on the sort of downside, it's kind of all over the place in tone, and sometimes this works really well. So there's a bit where they go to the, like, creepy Pokemon graveyard tower in Lavender Town, and the zombie Pokemon are genuinely creepy. Like, if I was a child, I would have been quite frightened. <laughs> um... But yes, the tone the tone definitely flits around a lot. I mean, it's, it's early in the series as well. I didn't go and check what any of the more recent ones are like, and I would kind of like to do that just to see. But there's also a bunch of stuff that you just don't really expect from a kid's comic, or at least you certainly wouldn't get in a kid's comic these days. For instance, there's a female character as well called Green who mm. hangs out with Blue and Red, but she's like a thief with a troubled background mm. and stuff. Well, her origin story is extremely convoluted. She was stolen from Pallet Town by a flying Pokemon and thus is phobic of birds and so she ran away and started stealing stuff because she's emotionally troubled but she also kind of helps out in the end and in the end Professor Oak disguises himself as a fighter to enter the Pokemon League using only bird Pokemon to show her up because he knows who she is and then she has her big emotional breakdown moment about how she is bird phobic because she got stolen by a bird and that's why she's a bad dude and she steals Breathe. <laughs> but no, it's that level of like frantic nonsense as plot. But again, what I think of is child logic storytelling. Yes. And then this happened, and then this happened. Yes, basically. Um, but also, so at one point, this character Green is getting hit on by a fisherman, and he's just got a fag in his mouth like he's smoking <laughs> at the Pokemon League while he's hitting on a female child. And that's just all there in the manga mm. in a way that, I mean... The games, again, replaying the games, they've really cleaned them up between the early generations where the tone was a bit more weird and it was a bit more culturally Japanese to the kind of Western exports of the latter day. So, for instance, in the original Red and Blue, there's a guy who stands outside the Celadon gym saying, this gym is great, it's full of women. He's just a dirty old man. And in the remake, Fire Red and Leaf Green, he says, this gym is great, it's full of strong trainers. Like that's how female trainers. Well, yeah, nobody doesn't mention that. Like that's how family friendly they've. You know, the later games you can't even put swears as your name because mm. there's Wi-Fi enabled playing and stuff. It's fascinating mm. how they've had to kind of slowly clean it up. But then, if you look again at the sort of kind of Japanese origin material, there's the anime one where James has like inflatable boobs and stuff on the beach. It's there's some proper weird stuff mm. in there. It's. Whilst also being surprisingly good, it's also fundamentally kind of boring because it's the story of Pokemon. I mean, the thing, the thing that I really struggle with as somebody who enjoys the game mechanics is the whole deal of the plot and the world structure is that you get on better if you relate emotionally to your Pokemon. And I just don't really relate emotionally to my Pokemon because when I'm playing the game... All that matters is like levels and type advantage. It doesn't yeah. matter whether you like your Pokemon or not. You, they just need to be a like purebred. My character's called Bumhole. I mean, <laughs> I'm not taking it very seriously. I'm not forging a deep bond with my Pokemon. Um, my partner plays a lot of Pokemon and basically mm. just sees it as a eugenics project. Yes, fair. Um, some of the I don't know if this was a translation issue or what, but the chapter titles are all a, ostensibly a pun on the name of the Pokemon, but they're sort of third or even fourth order puns. Um, there's one, a chapter called dot dot dot, but Firo itself. And I'm like, you just made a reference that you did absolutely nothing with to shoe on in the name of the Pokemon you're going to be introducing in this episode. Uh... Danger, high volt orb. No. No. They just they just plain don't work nope. to the point where my skin kind of shuddered when I had to read each one and I read like forty of the chapters. <laughs> um, there's also again sort of I think it's that kind of kid logic storytelling, just boring lazy things. Like there's a whole chapter where Red wins a triathlon with the help of his Pokemon and gets ten grand in prize money, but he meets and catches a Snorlax on the way and at the end, oh well I had to spend the whole ten grand on feeding the Snorlax because the Snorlax needs a lot of feeding. I'm like, oh like you could have actually done something interesting with that windfall in terms yeah. of the slot and you just fed it to a Snorlax at the end of the chapter. Like this feels like a metaphor, you know? Um I'm fascinated. What's under question mark, question mark, question mark? Well yes, we've covered the good and we've covered the bad. They made some extremely weird references to Western culture. There's a bit where Red says, ha, it's like Tom Sawyer and Becky in the cave, and I'm like, who the f 
fuck knows about Tom Sawyer and Becky in the cave? Also, they weren't in the cave very long and it wasn't very important, even within the context of Tom Sawyer. Um, Is this like, I don't know, the Japanese writing team desperately remembering their high school English course? Entirely possible. Um, Bill the Pokemaniac of sort of the North Cerulean Cave area talks like Rooster Cogburn. Like, he's got a strong, meandering southern accent. <laughs> this is the guy, and, and he's sort of, you know, he's like, here's the fang, you've got to paralyse their wangs. And they literally write the word wangs for wings. That means something totally different. Uh, yeah, that's not crossing over very well. No. Um, there's some weird stuff plot-wise. So in this, instead of battling the gym leaders in the normal fashion, which I guess would get boring in an episodic comic... Hmm. The conceit is that a bunch of the gym leaders turned evil and joined Team Rocket. So in this, Lieutenant Surge, Sabrina, and Koga are all active Team Rocket members, and Blaine is an ex-Team Rocket member. And a lot of the action of the sort of middle section of the book is unfucking their fuckery. But the idea in the anime or in the games that gym leaders other than Giovanni would be Team Rocket members as well seems just completely weird, like kind of out of keeping mm. with the plot of the thing. They did some they did some weird shit with individual Pokemon. There was some weird kind of Eevee related stuff where they were gonna you know, they were like, oh an Eevee can just turn into whatever it sees. A ditto can become anything. It's like, not specifically true in terms of the games. It's kind of a lazy way of portraying it. So yes, it was equal parts good, bad and weird, which I guess I, I get the impression you would actually recommend this. Yeah, kind of. Like, I sunk a lot more of my time into it than I expected, and that's probably diagnostic. And it's also, if you have any, you know, if you've sort of been culturally Pokemon for any length of time and you haven't looked Mm. at these, which is exactly the situation I was in, like, four days ago, um, it's definitely interesting. I mean, I found my my heart sort of swelled when I saw the weird sprites and screenshots just included completely plain in the comic. Don't expect it to be incredibly emotionally deep and meaningful, but if you're coming at Pokemon, you're probably not expecting that anyway. So, yeah. I would say, yeah, cautious recommendation. And if this has been your thing in other media, then it may well be your thing here. Which which I guess is how the money teeth is designed to be squirted. Yes, and I, I can't... I can't call this out as an egregious example of that mm. just because all of Pokemon is a money cheat. Yeah. There are two elephants in this room and sadly on the one hand and delightfully on the other, I can't speak for humans, boys, I haven't actually engaged with either of them. Star Wars and Transformers. Nope, neither. Uh, the Transformers comics have been going forever. I am told there are good ones. I struggle to believe that and I was genuinely going to go and have a look but just didn't get time. Mm-hmm. Um, the other franchise that's been spoken of quite highly in places, and I've read a few of these here and there, but I didn't manage to get to go back to them, is Star Wars. Is Star Wars. Mm. And I, that runs the whole gamut of wanky fan service franchise extension, unnecessary plot fill-in, mm. and then things like the Clone Wars mini-mangas, the Clone Wars comics, which had a wonderful visual style mm-hmm. and just told these zippy little stories. In, uh, well, Star Wars is such a big bloated monstrosity that you're going to get bits within it that totally work and you're going to get bits within it that absolutely don't and some of those are going to be major motion pictures and some of those are going to be the teats dangling off the edge of it I mean for years that's what just Dark Horse did right? Mm. They, they got the rights to something and spanked it out sometimes better than average Yes. Uh, then they got Hellboy and didn't suck for a while well we, we had some unexpected surprises I think yeah. Pokemon being better than expected Flintstones nailing it Even though, and also even though this was only a drop in the ocean of what's available it also feels like we covered a decent range of the approaches and quality yeah. levels that you can get out trying to do this. One of the Aliens spin-offs I read, Aliens Apocalypse, um, was like the version of Prometheus they should have made. Mm. It wasn't amazing, and it had a lot of things wrong with it, because again, it didn't quite manage to use some of the core bits of what make Aliens Aliens. But Did it, it have Fassbender's really... head in a gym bag? Because no. that's the important bit for me. No. Fine. But it, it had some really lovely moments, and I'm not, I'm not going to whiffle on about it, but there were just things like, well, actually, if that had been the treatment for Prometheus, there'd have been a better movie. <laughs> and that's actually... I can see that being both common and depressing, that mm. actually at the good end, at the sort of quality teat as opposed to the money teat end of the thing, because it's all teats, yeah. right? everything's teats. It's teats all the way down. Um, 
I can see it being very easy for a small, focused, pointed in the right direction creative group to actually do a better job with the franchise than the big boys are doing. Mm. They'll also get a bit more freedom. Like the re edits they get are going to be lighter, it's yeah. going to have less studio testing, more control over the tone, the direction you take yeah. it in. I think for me, the, the one of the biggest takeaways has been just kill your fucking darlings, resist the allure of the infinite budget. You don't have it anyway because your artists are human. Yes. Um, <laughs> But also, I mean, I'm very, very aware that I only read volumes one through three of a series that has been running in manga form since 1996, really without a break, covering Mm. multiple iterations of a game that has got more and more derivative of itself over the same period of time. There are dissertations to be written about Pokemon at this point. It's fascinating. But I have, I mean, I probably, if I'd had more time, I would have gone Mm. and done a quality check later on. I have no idea how well this carries on, how well this stands up over time. Yeah, I groused about this one, and mm. Dave said he was kind of not sorry to be missing it. But I quite enjoyed it from, time. The, from the metacritical angle. There's a yeah. lot to chew on, even if the actual comics themselves often wank. I wish I'd had a broader base. I wish I'd spent less time on the Buffy. I'm glad I took time for Transformers. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to have covered a bit more breadth in this space. But also, the amount of breadth you can possibly cover is essentially infinite yeah, at this it's point. It's the same as... It's as broad as do a comics. Yes. Because, you know, it's, it's do a media. But, yeah. I, I guess, I don't know, what am I trying to say here? Re- recommend us interesting spin-off comics if mm-hmm. we've missed anything particularly egregious. There are bound to be some franchises like... Um, Sophie Campbell did a run on German holograms. Yes. Which I yes, didn't she did. get to so much. No, actually. same. And, and she's great. Yes, she is. So... Spin-offs. They exist, they are multitude, they are really, really varying in their quality level. You will know better than us whether or not you should give a fuck about any particular individual ones. It is sometimes a lossy conversion, and you're probably going to... Oh, here's, here's a, one, one last thing to kind of ease us out. Is, do you think you're going to have, on, in general, a better or a worse experience coming at a franchise you already love? Because it's high... On the, on the one hand, that's an easy in. On the other hand, it's high risk for the disappointment. It so totally depends on execution, it's still my position. So, for instance, I didn't imagine I'd like Pokemon this much. Whereas there are, like Mass Effect, I thought, yeah, I'm going to love a Mass Effect comic, and then just didn't, because actually it turned out it was pointless, and I hadn't realised why that would be the case before I started engaging with it. Like, it's... I mean, you would say, oh, a comic of The Simpsons, that could be risky, I love The Simpsons, it's really funny, does that translate onto the page? Yeah, actually it does. But equally, there's a bunch of stuff that is just plain wank. You're going to have to read it and see it for yourselves. Off you go. Mm. Bye. Ta-da. I knew that hope would come one day. <laughs> <laughs>